At the roof of the world, there is a place called Gomuk, the base of the Gogotri Glacier in the Himalayan Mountains. As the ice of this glacier melts, it becomes the clear waters of a little river, and this little river joins another little river, and together they flow down from the mountains to form the Ganges, the holiest river in India. In 1999, visiting northern India, I asked the family of my childhood best friend, my host, to take me to see the Ganges. It took some convincing, because the Ganges is holy to many people, but it is also very polluted. The best time to see the Ganges, say all the guidebooks, is at dawn. Somehow, I convinced my friend and her cousins to do this, to go to the bank of a river of sewage, a river of ash and sacredness, and to get into a boat. A boat made of cobbled together two-by-fours and only one working oarlock. By the time we'd haggled the price with the boat walla and gotten out on the water, the ball of sun had gone from pink to yellow to white and the column of light it cast extended as far as the ripples made by our oars. Two girls floated over in their own boat and sold us offerings, candles in or and orange flower garlands in a little leaf bowl. We set them in the water and we watched them float, flames bobbing away. On the near side, the river was punctuated with gots, stone piers that led down to the water. The closer we were to the edge of the ghats, the scummier the water became. It was generally a gray-green, but there marked with eddies of trash, flower petals, matted bits of hair and ash. We passed Manikarnika ghat for cremation. Some believe that to immerse one's ashes in the Ganges breaks the cycle of rebirth. At another ghat, a group of boys, all wrapped in yellow shawls, were being ushered in for sacred bathing. Others were washing clothes. One man stood waist deep in the water. He dipped a small bronze pot into the river and then from above his head poured a steady stream back into the water. As the sun flashed on the pot, he stared intently at the place where the water met the water. Though this kind of worship may sound foreign to us, sitting comfortably in the cathedral, we understand fire and flowers and also sacred water. After all, our tradition began in the desert, where water was logistically as well as religiously precious and it's water we use to baptize each other, our sign of belonging to the community. Rivers are places of commerce, of hope and purification, and of gathering. There's a river, too, in that wild vision of John, the Revelation text, but it doesn't appear until the final chapter, a river flowing crystal clear from God's great throne. In the chapter we read, we do get the crowd, there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, sitting before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white. 
Now, I admit, I am often uncomfortable with the end times images and theology that arises from Revelation. It's a little extra for me, and it's pretty scary. But I started thinking about it differently when I heard black poet and theologian Anjanae Dawkins point out that in many white church traditions, the eschatology, or vision of end times, is one of apocalypse. Think the rapture, remember that left behind book series or the leftovers show? But in many traditionally black churches, the end times vision is of heaven. From this point of view, the destruction that the end times bring is to be praised because that destruction wipes out all the structural oppression, all the suffering. As it says, they will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne is their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So for many, the vision of Revelation, the vision that ends with a stream of water pouring from the throne, is one of liberation and freedom. Let us not underestimate the power of water. It can cleave rock. In Western Oregon, we like our rivers mossy, branches bending out across them wrapped in green, Fingers of streams and rivers dance across our valley, and we are proud of the clarity and purity of our drinking water from the Bull Run watershed, from which our own river, the Willamette, flows. And yet, our river, too, is polluted. The Portland Harbor was declared a Superfund site 20 years ago, its sediment and fish still contaminated from decades of industrial activity. Our river, too, can connect the world of the living to the world of the dead. And this is the season of death. Many of us are taking down signs of death from our houses. Now that Halloween has passed, those playful images of decay. And while we may think that the way we celebrate Halloween is antithetical to church, the days this past week, All Hallows' Eve, All Souls' Day, and All Saints' Day, used to be celebrated more widely as a triduum. Honoring of the saints, as we do today, is all about the dead. When we talk about the saints now, we're usually referring to their model lives. But in late antiquity, when they began to be honored, it was the fact of their deaths that made them important. Their tombs created a conduit to the divine. As scholar Peter Brown says, by the end of the sixth century, the graves of the saints had become centers of church life in their regions. This was because the saint in heaven was believed to be present at his tomb on earth. And Brown design, describes the way the, the tombs were designed. Filled with great candelabra, their dense cluster of light mirrored in shimmering mosaic and caught in a gilded roof bringing the light of the Milky Way to within a few feet of the grave. Through relics and images, tomb and altar were joined. And everyone could claim, through veneration of the saints, access to a place where heaven broke through. When Revelation talks about a cloud of witnesses, I think about our ancestors, saints and the not-so-saintly. We are connected to them by saying their words and honoring their deeds, visiting the places where they walked. 
and even more as our understanding of DNA science grows ever more precise, we learn more about how we are the living embodiments of their bodies through epigenetics, through DNA chimera. We are made up of each other, those from whom we are descended and those who we are to bear. Maybe this is another way that God breaks the bonds of death. Or as Paul puts it in the epistle, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. In a moment, a couple of you will be presented for baptism, and we will call you by name. Cecilia Grace, Elliot Langston, Casey, and George, or those speaking on your behalf, will ask you all to make a lot of promises. Of all the promises we ask you to make, the one I think about the most often is this one. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? Like all the other ones we ask, that is not a small thing. Many of the rest of us in here did this as babies, which I think of as kind of like clicking the terms and conditions button, you know, without reading it. So that's why it's important for all of us to hear those promises again and to remake them with every baptism we witness. These are the vows that we must try and try and try again to keep. So for the rest of you today, if you are struggling with your goal of sainthood or even just your baptismal vows, let me offer a suggestion. One simple way we dignify each other is to know and to say each other's names. That goes for those living and those gone beyond this life. Tonight at Evensong, we will read a necrology, the names of our beloved dead, because their names matter. I think of the long list released by the Ministry of Health in Gaza, last week, when the number of deaths in this nascent war were questioned, we named everyone. To name is to dignify, even in death. In India, people travel for many miles on pilgrimage to the Ganges. Sometimes they will collect Ganga Jal, water from the river, to bring home to family members. A small part of the river in this way can carry the whole of the river. But many who cannot travel to the Ganges are encouraged to bathe in their own local rivers with the spiritual understanding that all rivers are sacred and by that holiness connected to each other. And our baptismal font works the same way. We believe that by blessing the water we offer here, our crystal clear bull run water, the river of water poured into this font stands as all rivers of the world and the next, that crystal river that flows from the throne. Today, we will anoint you with oil. We will offer you fire. We will pour sacred water on you. And we will call out your name as a tributary and a stream of the great rivers of God. Amen. <laughs>